0: Prior to June of this year, chances are pretty high that none listening to this podcast had ever heard the name Damon Atkins. Today, of course, his story is familiar, having been picked up and carried by both local and national media outlets. So let me just ask you are you familiar with his story? Maybe there's not a great deal known about Damon. But the intersection with his life on the part of most of us begins on a street corner in Reading, Pennsylvania. It's the morning of June 6th, 2023, the time, 10.05 a.m. In these early morning hours, a crowd has gathered to participate in the city's inaugural Pride March and Rally, a rally, of course, endorsed by the city mayor, Eddie Moran. Prior to the march, Sergeant Bradley McClure, in an effort to ensure the safety of participants, has asked Matthew Weir, a local street preacher, to vacate the area, an action that Weir cooperates with, only to be replaced by, you guessed it, Damon Atkins. As Atkins begins to engage participants in the march, through scriptural reading, calling for repentance, Sergeant Bradley once again steps in, this time asking Atkins to respect the parade, by quietly leaving the parade route. He does not. Instead, Atkins asserts his right to read Scripture in a public setting, a right which he, without question, held as this was public property. As Atkins opens his Bible to 1 Corinthians 14.33, a verse which states that God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. It's a paradox. Sergeant Bradley moves into full gear. No peace Arresting and handcuffing Atkins, charging him with disorderly conduct, a charge, of course, later dropped by the city attorney due to lack of evidence. I want you to hear this. Charges were dropped in this case, but it, the incident has not been, nor will it soon be forgotten as it raises significant questions about issues such as the freedom of speech, safety in the public square, perhaps more appropriately, the place of the public square in the expression of ideas and maybe most importantly the extent of pushback that traditional biblical christianity should expect given our cultural milieu i want to welcome you to this week's edition of god-sized living if you haven't been with us we've been looking over the last several weeks at what seems to be a pretty broad topic in the scriptures namely that of antichrist today my goal is That we pick up where we left off last week by looking at the second half of Revelation chapter 13. Specifically, what I want to get at today is the fact that you and I are living in an America where we should probably no longer be surprised by stories such as Damon Atkins. In fact, if you'll allow me to be a bit bold, I believe we ought to expect to read more and more of these types of stories in the daily newspaper and ponder the possibility that one day each one of us just might become the subject of one of them. Today I want to, through the lens of the revelation, get underneath the why. Why should we expect there to be, in increased measure, what I'm going to refer to as a sophisticated and enculturated persecution of classic apostolic evangelical Christianity in the America that we today call home? Now, one of the things, of course, that has me thinking about this question is a, a recent event that took place at Belmont College. I don't, I don't know how familiar you are with the history of Belmont, but I'll tell you, if you go to its website today, you'll, you'll see that Belmont purports to be not only a Christian school, but the largest Christian school in America today. Now, I would debate that as Belmont registers a total student population of just about 9,000 versus Grand Canyon University, uh, a school I consider Christian, a population of over 103,000. Nonetheless, it purports to be Christian, and in fact, the front page of the website is composed of scenes from worship services held on campus. Historically, you you might remember Belmont began, this is way back in the 1800s, as a women's college. In 1951, the school was purchased by the Tennessee Baptist Convention and it functioned under a Baptist Board of Directors until the year 2007 when it cut ties and became an independent and non-denominationally run organization. The school, located in Nashville, is a desirable site for speakers and lecturers in the Christian vein which is what caught my attention, or I should say the attention of many conservative Christian leaders most recently. So allow me to throw a word out here, actually two. The word is Promise Keepers. So are you familiar with the organization? A lot of people I talk to today remember Promise Keepers. It was an organization that played a prominent role back in the 1990s and early 2000s. Uh, If you remember with me, it was founded by Coach Bill McCarty of Colorado. Uh, It became a national movement focused on teaching biblical principles associated with manhood and marriage. I I remember the movement that Promise Keepers became with, with a degree of fondness. From a personal perspective, I was able to participate in a number of Promise Keeper events, and maybe more importantly than the events themselves, are the catalytic developments of men's ministries across our country because of Promise Keepers. To this day, I credit the movement for the formation of thousands of men's ministries in Christian churches. The movement was anointed, worship-focused and prayer-infused, and then snap, just like that, it seemed to go away until recently. In 2018, Promise Keepers was relaunched under a new mission, that of urging Christians to live out their faith more boldly in this changing world. Put this together, promise keepers. Live out faith boldly. Belmont Christian College. Lots of young students who would benefit from a live boldly message and so it was born. Belmont College signed a contract with promise keepers to serve as a host site to one of the live bold conferences. It all makes sense, right? Until Belmont, the Christian College, canceled the promise keepers event want you to listen to this promise keepers was scheduled to come to belmont college uh, september 29th uh, 2023 promise keepers put together ads for the event they begin to to pr tickets and then the phone rang here's what happened in the midst of cultures hyper push to redefine sexuality Promise Keepers published what CEO Ken Harrison describes as a statement regarding the biblical view that God created human beings, male and female. That in marriage, God formed an ordinance between one man and one woman. Pretty, pretty simple, pretty straightforward. Now, according to Ken, the CEO, it was based upon this statement that two days before tickets were to go on sale for the Promise Keepers event, he received a call from Belmont informing him That because the values of the college, listen to this, because the values of the college do not align with promise keepers, they were going to cancel the event. Make make sure you understand this. Belmont College, purportedly a Christian college, signs a contract with promise keepers to host a faith event. Promise keepers publishes a statement that is Christian. They publish a biblical statement of position. It's biblical. Then Belmont, which purports to be Christian, cancels the event because, according to Harrison, the school's values do not align with those of Promise Keepers. What's, what's going on? Now, to be fair, I do, I do want to inform you that Belmont contests Harrison's interpretation of what happened. They, they want to indicate that what caused the cancellation was the way Promise Keepers published their statement with a lack of respect towards an audience that does not live biblically. E- either way, the event was canceled. And it's not the only event. I think we know this, that we're living in a day where the Promise Keeper story is happening all the time. The second that an individual, a church, or an organization publishes or expresses a theology that is not in alignment with our culture's ideology and narrative. Boom! Some type of cancellation takes place. Individuals might be dismissed, organizations cancels, chur- churches... Basically held to be irresponsible. We live in a time where we we've, we've almost become numb to it, numb to cancellation, because it happens with such high degree of frequency. My question is, what do we do with this reality? So I'm finding that it's it's all too easy for us to see what's happening through sociological or cultural lenses. In other words, we blame the promise keeper incidents on culture shift. We say things like, wow, it's just too bad this happened to promise keepers or one of the other thousands of organizations that have experienced something similar. We say, you know, we need to do something about this, this shift, this trend, this movement away from our Christian roots. And if I'm listening closely enough, we often turn towards the use of sociological or cultural or legislative tools in an effort to push back against those who've pushed back against conservative biblical practitioners, that is, worshipers of Jesus Christ who are living out their faith. What we sometimes fail to do, however, is to recognize that what's happening at Belmont College or other venues within our culture is not simply cultural or a shift or sociological in nature. There's a master manipulator at work in all of this, And that master manipulator has a name in the scriptures. He is called Antichristos in the singular, or Antichristoi in the plural. So let me be plain. When I read the Promise Keeper story, alarms go off inside of me. I find myself shouting. This is Antichrist at work. And not only is it Antichrist, but it is, is Antichrist at his worst, doing what he does in the name of Jesus. Hang on, Luke. Do you do you realize how radical you sound right now? Do you you realize what people might think about you, were you to make your opinion known? People would laugh. They would say, "This guy's lost it. He's taking things a little bit far." I think he's maybe fallen into the loony bin. I mean, is what happened to Belmont bad? Well, of course it's bad, but it's just part of what's happening in culture. Here's my response. No, it's not. What's happening is not simply cultural or sociological or even religious, the way our culture defines religion. No, what's happening is actually demonic warfare. And it's this that causes me to appreciate the Scripture before us with tremendous thanksgiving. Last week, uh, if you were able to listen, we we looked at the first half of the Revelation, chapter 13. Uh, We're doing this, allow me to give a little context within our, our greater quest to understand how the Bible speaks about Antichrist. Now, why, why are we talking about Antichrist? Because in a very real sense, the book of Daniel does. As Daniel reaches the end of his life, God takes him to a place through an ecstatic vision in which he receives a very rare and unique Old Testament preview of the times that we're living in today. It's as though God says to Daniel, Daniel, I'm going to use your voice to speak into a time that is to come, a time when the spiritual battle that's being fought for souls on battleground earth will grow intense. And he pours into Daniel words that bring us to the very time that we're living in right now. As much as Paul was able to proclaim over 2,000 years ago, quote, Do you not know that your battle is not with flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the power of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly realms? Ephesians 6 12. Today we can say, do we not recognize Antichrist when we see him? Listen, while the Bible technically uses the term Antichrist only four times, first John chapter two twice, first John four and second John seven, it points to him frequently, and that's the case in Revelation chapter thirteen. Last week we learned through the first part of Revelation thirteen that one of the key ways that Antichrist works is through government and those who govern. In fact, I've become pretty pointed, I believe I have to be, in suggesting that when governing officials act in such a way that the essence of their governing becomes theological in nature, and in their office and capacity thereof they set themselves against God, Jesus, the gospel, they are acting as antichrists. Last week I shared a couple of specific examples about this. Last week we talked about what happens when the President of the United States speaks to the public and with declarative words proclaims that a fertilized egg or an embryo or an infant within their mother's womb is not a human being. That, that language is not political language. It's not cultural. It's not sociological. It's theological. He, or if it were she, is speaking in the seat of God as though he or she has the power to do so. When we hear words like these, we ought immediately to recognize that not only are they theological, but in this case, as an example, they're spoken with the intent of legalizing the murder of infants in the womb. Antichrist is absolutely present. Revelation 13 is clear about this. Now, today, today I want to complete this section, Revelation 13. Uh, this section helps us understand that we're to find him at work in governments and in those who govern. We're going to look at verses 6 to 11. I want to, I want to read these verses, but before we do, I want to make sure I'm clear on one thing. Uh, when I suggest that Revelation 13 teaches that we are to find Antichrist at work within government and those who govern, please know that I'm not suggesting that the Bible teaches that all who govern are Antichrist. Absolutely not. Remember, we discussed this several weeks ago. We recognize that governments are are something God establishes underneath his authority. That's that's Romans 13. I'm not going to rehash the teaching, but I want to state it plainly again. When the Bible calls for us to be aware of Antichrist within governments, it's not talking about everyone who governs. But here's what the Bible does tell us two things. One, that we should expect that some who govern are absolutely antichrist. Two, that there are some specific signs or indicators that tell us what to look for In Those who govern that is there are some specific signs or markers to look for as we discern the presence of antichrist in government as I read these verses 6 to 11. I want you to listen for these signs. How do I know we're dealing with antichrist and pay attention to the authority under which antichrist works. So let's read the verses, Lord. We pray that you would speak to us uh, in this moment through these verses of Scripture you give us through John in the Revelation, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's read. Verses 6 to 11, Revelation 13, begins as follows, quote, It opened its mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. It was given power to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. And it was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. All the inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast. All whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life. The Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. Whoever has ears, let him hear. If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity they will go. If anyone is to be killed with the sword, with the sword they will be killed. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. So let's walk through at least a little bit of this together. I want to start with what I'm calling some of the signs that John gives us here in the Revelation. Signs that we're to look for amongst those who govern or among governing institutions themselves. Signs that indicate the presence of Antichrist. I count three of them in verse 6. This opening verse that we just read. Maybe you picked them out. Uh, let me walk through them. Sign so number one, the government or the governing authority blasphemes gods. Just hear these words again. John says it opened its mouth to blaspheme God. So wh- what does that mean to you? What does it sound like to blaspheme God? Most uh, conservative theologians, of course, define blasphemy as the act of insulting or showing contempt for or the lack of reverence for God. Another definition includes the act of actually appropriating God's word for one's own purposes, not his. Now, there are some rather obvious examples of this act within governments and governing individuals as we look at political systems. When Mayo say tongue, looking back at the past, it declares that there is no God and begins to systematically kill all Christian leaders. That's a gimmick, kind of a duh. Yeah, that that's blasphemous when Marx or Lenin, outlaw Christian Bibles, the same. We see these, but do we allow ourselves to see some of the less obvious examples? Allow me to point one out. When the governor of a state appropriates for themselves the words of Jesus and uses these words to encourage the murder of unborn children, shouldn't this be an obvious sign that Antichrist is present? By the way, if you're not familiar with what I'm talking about, please Google the biblical quote used by the governor of California on billboards across our nation in an effort to encourage people to come to his state to murder their babies, assuring us that he will keep such murder legal. If you remember with me, on billboards across this nation, he he literally uses the words of Jesus that state that that no greater love has man than this, that he would lay down his life for his friends. He's saying to people, I'm doing what Jesus called us to do. I'm being your friend in this tough time you're going through. You need to murder your baby. Come do it right here in California. I'll keep it legal for you. This is what Jesus would want. Wow. I would hope that we can see Antichrist presence in that. It stands against everything that Christ stands for. So sign number two, the government or the governing authority slanders God's name and dwelling place. Again, what does that that mean to you? To slander, of course, means to speak an untruth about another or speak in such a way as to bring harm to another's reputation. Applied within the spiritual realm to God, there are, just as with blasphemy, obvious examples within governing systems or governors, individuals. But as with blasphemy, there are subtle forms of slander that happen around us. I was thinking about this during that period of time during which our country was in the throes of battling COVID-19. Uh, I don't think I'll ever forget watching the President of the United States engage in a slanderous act against God. Christians everywhere were praying, God, please intervene for us in a miraculous way. We, we needed that. Our, our country was hurting. People were hurting. In the midst of that hurt, the president addressed our nation with these words. He said, quote, if we are to overcome this disease, it will be through science and not through miracle, end quote. Think about what's being said underneath that incredible statement. In a very real sense, the president of the United States is saying God can't fix this. He's impotent to do so. We must not rely upon miracle, but upon our ability and technology. He is casting slanderous doubt upon God and upon God's followers. Slander in both cases. Subtle? Yes. But slander just the same. That's sign two. Sign three. He will blaspheme or slander those who make their dwelling in heaven. That is, he will cast dispersion upon heaven or its existence itself. Three signs. All visible, I would suggest in what might be described as a subtle way, even within our own government today, simply said, Antichrist is at work here and now. Is that popular to say? Probably not. What a lot of people look at someone like me and think, man, that guy's lost his mind. The President of the United States is not acting as Antichrist. The Governor of California is not acting as Antichrist. Yet as clearly... As can possibly be spelled out this scripture says otherwise so let's ask this question why doesn't god just stop them he's already overcome the antichrist satan in the heavenly realm why does he need to stop these individuals in our realm why would you allow someone like hitler mayo stalin putin the governor of california america's president to act as antichrist i want you to listen to this this is where Our scripture, I believe, gets even tougher. Let's dig into these words. John writes in chapter 13 of the Revelation, quote, It, here we're talking about governing authorities, was given power to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. And it was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. I want you to let those words just sink in because I have a question for you. Who has given power to this or these antichrists? Who? The answer is God. God himself has authorized antichrist. What kind of power does he have? Antichrist? The power to wage war against those who follow Jesus and actually overcome. That's you and that's me. That's your marriage. That's your family. So if you've ever wondered, why why does it seem like what's happening in our world today is at war with who i am and what i believe the answer is because you are and god has authorized it and let me add this not only has he authorized it this war against you but he allows you and i to actually be overcome by antichrists not spiritually but physically legislatively culturally sociologically yes he allows us to be overcome let me tell you why this is important for us to understand everything that is inside of us along with much of what we've come to believe about god tells us that god is supposed to do what He's supposed to protect us it's his job to make sure that when laws are passed or cultural practice is established these are to be supportive of all that is good and right and biblical when that's not the case we find ourselves flabbergasted we shouldn't be i'll tell you i was thinking about this just yesterday i was watching a, a panel of news analysts discussing What's happening amongst youth in the United States around the transgender movement Uh, in our country today, there are states that have made it a law to provide minors with gender altering surgeries that sometimes scar them for life. A child comes in and they tell their doctor, hey, I'm a female. In a male's body, and legally, without asking any questions, the doctor begins to cut off parts of the male anatomy to make the young person anatomically into a boy versus a girl. I hear this thing, and I want to scream at the top of my lungs, God, surely you will not allow this to stand. Surely you will not allow this to happen. But he does. Not not only does he. But what does Scripture tell me? I should expect this. Just as the early Christians wondered, how could God allow us to be persecuted in the Colosseums and killed in the streets of Rome? We're his people. He could stop this from happening. Just as Damon Atkins wondered, how, how can I get arrested in America for reading the Bible on public grounds? The answer is God has authorized it. The question is why? And the answer. I don't want to sound here like I'm I'm speaking cliche or avoiding this in any way, but ultimately the answer has to do with the way in which God works. It has to do with how God uses all of what is going on in our world for the good of his church and his mission. It leads me to a couple of questions that I want to leave us with today. So question one, just think about any recent examples, can you? of governing individuals who've acted blasphemously or slanderously towards God or his followers. How's that happening where you live? Question two. We've said that God allows or authorizes Antichrist to do his work. In what ways do you see, here's, this is the key to today, in what ways do you see God using this inside of the church? Is he using it to wake us up? Is he using it to strengthen us? Is he using it to, to cause us to to recognize that our function as churches is not about uh, simply worship services or services to the, the faithful, but it is about souls and it is about a war. Is perhaps God using the hard stuff? He doesn't like it, but the hard stuff that we see happening around us to to call the church, to to militant action, not legislatively or sociologically, those are secondary, but spiritually, spiritual warfare, you see. Question three, as we move forward in the future, how how do you see the war against God's church increasing in intensity? And do you see the church rising up, becoming strong again, finding its way back to that apostolic place where Paul and John and the initial apostles lived in a world much like the one that we're in and did battle with it, and did battle with it with a word that has the power to change lives. Well, that that's all for today. I'm going to pray for you. I ask that you pray for me. And we'll continue this next week. I want to get into the very last chapter that we'll look at of scriptures that has to do with Antichrist. Next week, we'll look at uh, a scripture that kind of talks to us about um, the antichrist who is to come. What what should we expect as we look at future word? Well, that's all for today. I I thank you for listening and I pray that you have a God-sized week.